The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States. Thanks everyone for joining us this afternoon. My name is Anna Riley and with me is Bill Nygren, Portfolio Manager for the Oakmark Fund and the Oakmark Select Fund. Thanks, Anne, and thanks to each of you for taking time away from busy schedules to participate in the Oakmark quarterly call. The fourth quarter reversed a fair amount of the damage that was the first nine months of the year had created. The S&P gained 8%, Oakmark a couple points more, Select a couple points less. Both the market and our funds had nicely positive returns. That contrasts with the full-year returns that, despite the strong quarter, were decidedly negative. For the full year, the S&P lost 18%, with Oakmark losing somewhat less, 13%, and Select losing somewhat more. I think it's useful after a year like 22 to step back and look at a slightly longer time period. Over the two years, 2021 and 2022, Both the funds and the S&P increased in value, with Oakmark's gain of 16%, representing a fairly typical two-year return. It's just too easy to get caught up in the negative mood of the financial media. But despite including a down 2022, the two, three, five, and 10-year returns for the S&P and for our funds have been nicely positive. Select's disappointing performance relative to Oakmark was primarily due to a larger weighting in communication services, specifically Meta, Alphabet, Charter, Netflix, and Warner. Also hurting Select's performance relative to Oakmark were a heavier weighting in banks, and Select's auto-related names performed slightly worse than Oakmark's auto-related names. In Select, we sold Meta to make room for Oracle, and Lear to buy Lithia. Other than those changes, we continue to believe that the fundamentals and valuations of the stocks that hurt us in 2022 warrant maintaining these positions for 2023. And though we're only two short weeks into 2023, it is the rebound in these stocks that has led to select gaining more than Oakmark so far this year. One final comment on 2022 performance. We were disappointed that Oakmark failed to match the Russell Value Index, which lost only 8%. Our overweighting in banks and communication services accounted for our entire shortfall. Like the select comments I just made, we continue to believe these holdings warrant their position in the Oakmark portfolio, and these are the stocks that have led to our strong start in 2023. Our view on the market is that both stocks and bonds are attractively priced. That's been our near-constant view on stocks, but saying long-duration bonds are attractive is a recent change for us. For many years, we've been warning that interest rates being lower than inflation, negative real rates, was unsustainable, and that made bonds much riskier than normal. My colleague Colin Hudson who co-manages both our equity and income fund and the Oakmark bond fund, wrote a good report defending the role of balance in one's investment portfolio. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. It's on the oakmark.com website under the quarterly for equity and income fund. I'd also like to make a quick commercial for the Oakmark bond fund. It will mark its three-year anniversary in June, 
and so far rates with the top performing core bond funds on Morningstar with a three percentage point advantage compared to its benchmark on an annual basis. It brings the same common sense long-term value approach to bonds that we use for equities and the bond team is doing very good work. Back to the equity portfolio, our activity was roughly normal in the quarter, two new names, compared to the elevated turnover that we had had earlier in the year in response to the market's elevated volatility. Similar to earlier in the year, we found value in both the traditional value name, Magna International, a large auto parts company selling just above book value and seven times our estimate of normal earnings, and also in a non-traditional name, Adobe Incorporated, which is typically found in growth portfolios. Adobe stock was down from 700, which it reached in late 2021, to 400 in August of 2022. Then in September, Adobe announced a high-priced acquisition, Figma, for $20 billion. The market's response was to take $45 billion off of the market cap of Adobe, knocking the stock below $300 per share. At that price, we were paying only a market multiple on next year's free cash flow estimate for a business we believe deserves to sell at a large premium valuation. As an aside, when managements with good long-term capital allocation records, like Adobe, announce an acquisition and the market drops the price by more than 100% of that acquisition's cost, we find that to be a pretty good pond to fish in. I remember one example from early in my career when Quaker Oats announced the acquisition of Stokely Van Camp, best known for their canned pork and beans, but also the parent of Gatorade. Quaker stock, which already was cheap, fell by more than the acquisition price. Of course, we all know now that the explosion in Gatorade's popularity powered Quaker's growth for the next two decades. We hope Figma can do the same for Adobe. Last, I want to again mention taxes. Despite unusually high portfolio turnover in 2022, Oakmark and Oakmark Select both had another year with no capital gains distribution. We consider our tax management to be industry-leading and expect 2023 to continue our track record of losing little, if any, of our pre-tax gains to capital gain distributions. And with that, Michelle, would you please open up the call to questions? Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. One moment, please, for the first question. Bill, while we wait for the question queue to build, I noticed Oakmark sold its Diamondback position but kept its other energy names. Why did you single out Diamondback to sell, and what is the reason you still hold the others? Uh, Thanks for the question. Um, As you know, the energy sector was, uh, I think, the best performing sector, if not very close to it, uh, last year, up significantly. And had we not sold any of our energy holdings, the the portfolio weighting of energy names would have grown substantially. And we like to prevent that from happening. We thought energy stocks were unusually attractive at the beginning of the year. Uh, The market partially corrected that during the year. But we didn't want our weighting to increase uh, just because prices went up. As we looked at the names, uh, we also own Conoco, um, Apache, and EOG. 
And one of the attractions to the industry to us has been that the market has been pricing most of these names very tightly on an enterprise value to EBITDA basis. And what that means is any assets that aren't currently producing EBITDA aren't really being valued for much uh, in, uh, in, the, in the marketplace today. Uh, we really liked Diamondback. We like the management. We like their properties in the Permian. But unlike the other names in our portfolio, they don't have many assets that aren't currently producing uh, the full EBITDA that they're capable of. So rather than trimming all of our names equally, we decided to eliminate Diamondback and then uh, only modestly reduce Conoco, uh, Apache, and EOG. Uh, our view on the industry remains positive. We think there's been underinvestment for a decade. Uh, we think that's going to lead to higher prices for a longer period of time than the market thinks. I mean, a lot of what we've read in the past year suggested the only reason prices were up was the Ukraine war. Uh, and I, I think um, more people are starting to realize that's simply not the case. Uh, the industry can't just turn a switch and up production. Uh, it's going to take years to, uh, to increase production to the level that a global economic rebound will require. So we still like the industry and still hold the other three names. Okay, we do have one question on queue. Our first question is from the line of Daniel Fordyce. Your line is open. Hey, Bill. Thanks so much for everything that you do and for doing these calls. How are you this afternoon? Doing well, Daniel. Thank you for being on the line. Absolutely. Uh, the question I had today was really to get a feel for how you and the team evaluate the buyback frameworks for some of the firms that you invest in. Um, a couple that kind of jump out to me more recently, and I know how you guys prefer slightly buybacks over dividend policies for the tax benefit, um, but with that comes a lot of discretion. And one of the things I've seen in a couple of the underlying holdings is when times are good and stock prices tend to follow, when our companies are over-earning, per se, or the market's really liking them. A couple of names like Charter and Ally. Um, how do you guys evaluate the pace and the framework they have for their buyback policies, um, specifically kind of on Charter, where in 2021 they bought back somewhere around the $18 billion of stock, um, and then, you know, coming into this year where it's a little more challenging environment, understood, um, but where that buyback program is really getting cut down and the CapEx is being announced now, um, where I know the pie is a little bit smaller, but having that cash on the balance sheet, you know, is worth a dollar. And now a lot of those buybacks that took place when the shares were at six, $700 a share are now worth three fifty, three eighty, four hundred. Um, could you guys talk about buyback framework and maybe track record on buybacks as, as part of the capital allocation analysis you guys do? Sure. So, you know, to start kind of theoretically, um, we like companies that reinvest in their own business only when they have a competitively advantaged path for that reinvestment and therefore the expectation of 
uh, earning excess returns on that capital. You know, we, we love when management teams uh, have an estimated value of their own company and they look at how large a discount they're able to buy that back and kind of stack that up against how attractive uh, their, their set of uh, other investment opportunities are. Uh, the thing we dislike the most is when a company decides to reinvest our capital in an industry that they have no reason to be competitively advantaged in. And we try to avoid investing with managements that think like that. Um, I know it's easy to look back and say, you know, Charter was expensive at 600 or Ally was expensive when it was at 40 given current prices. Um, but we thought, we thought those names were still undervalued at those prices, so we, uh, we were very pleased that management was continuing to repurchase shares. And I think, unfortunately, uh, the way the economic backdrop turned you know, a year ago, uh, nobody was thinking that the Fed would uh, be put in a position of having to try to crush the economy uh, by raising rates higher. Um, and uh, I don't blame companies, especially like Ally, for saying they need to slow down the pace of buybacks this year despite the stock price being lower, uh, because if we really are on the verge of a serious recession, uh, that would be capital that they would need inside the business. I think with Charter, also a year ago, uh, they probably had not fully anticipated how rapidly they would want to make the capital expenditures uh, that reduce their free cash flow this year. Uh, in management's eyes, there's a good reason for accelerating the capital expenditures, and that is they're expecting uh, a higher return on them than they had thought a year ago. So even though current stock market prices would suggest they would have been better off waiting to repurchase those shares, uh, we are comfortable with the thought process that the management teams had that resulted in those buybacks. Um, and I think there, there's something about buybacks because we can all see the stock prices that makes it much easier to be critical of a buyback than an acquisition where you, you don't get, you know, when a company makes an overpriced acquisition, you don't get to look at it a year later after the market's gone down a lot and say, wow, they should have waited because they could have gotten it a lot cheaper. Uh, it's it's easy, easier to measure the gain or loss on a short-term buyback, and because of that, people, people tend to be more critical. Uh, as we look back on our track record, um, our best returns have been in companies that um, – were able to invest the capital in their basic business at high rates of return. Uh, a company like MasterCard or Alphabet that we end up owning for more than a decade, uh, those have been among our best performers. Um, in, in the companies that haven't had that opportunity, and generally our investment set, you know, the, these companies are producing more cash than they can reinvest in their business. That's why they're available at such cheap prices. Uh, our results have been better when the companies have been ag aggressive acquirers of their own shares. Um, look at a, uh, a company uh, that we've recently put back in the portfolio that we had previously owned, like Oracle, that's reduced their share base by 40% uh, in the past decade. Uh, that got them through a long period where they didn't have growth in the company, uh, and yet they were able to still continue seeing a, 
uh, a share price that was moving higher, going going back a few years before that, uh, when we owned uh, the Liberty Media investment in DirecTV. That was another one where, uh, over about a seven or eight year period, uh, they bought back half the common stock in the company, uh, and and it resulted in a much higher acquisition price per share than we would have gotten otherwise. So, I mean, we we would still say, you know, we want the capital to come back to shareholders when when there's not uh, an incredibly attractive internal investment opportunity, uh, and we, you know, we'd rather have it come back to us as dividends than to have the company invest where they aren't competitively advantaged. But our our preference is because we believe everything we own is undervalued by definition. Uh, our preference would be for for repurchases. Thank you very much, Bill. Does a four and a quarter money market rate change the pace on or any of that math for any of the companies? that have buyback programs that maybe they spread it out a little longer, if they know, in fact, that their stock is inherently very cyclical, um, does that change the math at all, or does it not? I mean, it might a little. I have not heard any of our management teams say that they're going to slow the pace of repurchase because the cost of holding cash has gone down effectively with, with rates higher. What we have heard more of our companies doing where there is more of a cyclical nature to the business is uh, move, moving to extra dividends. Uh, it's something EOG is doing uh, where they commit to a base level of dividend and then based on uh, how much they actually earn in the year, uh, they, they will uh, pay out a percentage of that. Uh, I think that's another great way to return excess capital because um, managements understandably don't like to have to cut the base rate of dividend, and uh, especially in a business as cyclical as oil, uh, the stock price tends to be higher when the free cash flow is higher. And uh, you know, it's not quite as tax efficient, but we'd you know we, we'd much rather have them returning that capital to us as an extra dividend than having them stretch on the the uh, new exploration opportunities just because they have more more cash to play with. Thank you very much, Bill. Thanks again, Daniel. Thank you. Our next question comes from the line of Stuart. Your line is open. Um, hi, Bill. It's um, Stuart, Bank of America. Um, I, I saw in the commentary, I don't know if you mentioned it before, that you Sold General Electric, which is you know a stock you've been really patient about, and just curious as to what drove that. It wasn't a very large position, but um, you know you had sort of hung in there for a long time. And uh, um, I'm curious as is, is it the spins or what what your reasoning was there? No, oh, thanks thanks for the question, Stu. Um, you, know, you know you're right. General Electric had been in the portfolio for a long time. Uh, certainly a name we did not cover ourselves in glory with, uh, uh, having taken significant losses uh, in both Oakmark and Oakmark Select. Um, the way we handle companies that have been fundamentally disappointing is to try, try to clean sheet the idea as much as possible. Uh, sometimes we'll change the analyst who covers it. 
we'll definitely have the analyst represent the idea as if it was a new idea to see if you know, our investment co- committee believes it still meets our criteria. But we try to avoid the knee-jerk reaction that so many value managers have of saying, because the stock fell, we, want it, we definitely want to own more shares. And in the case of General Electric, uh, our position size uh, was declining because it had been underperforming other names in our portfolio. And equally important, or maybe even more important, fundamentals had been modestly disappointing pretty consistently from the time we, we had owned the stock. Uh, and it wasn't so much in the basic businesses as it was that uh, the financial liabilities that were there just uh, kept creeping up a little bit, eating into free cash flow. And uh, GE actually didn't have that bad a year in 2022, and uh, most other companies did. And we we thought we'd uh, just take advantage of, of being able being able to move it out of the portfolio reevaluate each of the spin-offs uh, as separate companies and you know it was really the the very attractive opportunity set that we had in other names um, that that is why we pushed it out of the portfolio if I could follow up did you take the same tack with um, Facebook and make a different it looks like you made a different decision well um, we same tack in Facebook um, and our again our our baseline is when the fundamentals aren't performing the way we expected we don't want to add to the position in our diversified accounts and we will generally remove the position from concentrated accounts and that's what we did uh, our frustration was not much at all with what was going on in the basic facebook and instagram businesses it was in the way management was allocating capital uh, and both through capital expenditures and operating expenses, putting a tremendous investment in the metaverse. And uh, we went through our typical process of saying, let's, let's not buy or sell any of this. We want to meet with management, uh, hear, hear their explanation of what to us is disappointing. And we did that with Meta. And uh, we we weren't satisfied with with what we heard from them in terms of how how economically they they were thinking about the investment in the metaverse. Um, so we didn't add any in Oakmark. We sold it out of Select. Uh, and the the trigger for us to get reinterested in it will be uh, seeing that management is is showing an an economic point of view on how they're spending money on the metaverse. I've joked with our analysts, I think Facebook is probably the only company in our portfolio that if I was named CEO tomorrow, that I would have a path to know how to make the stock price go higher. I think all they would have to do is spin off Instagram and uh, the the stock would go up tremendously because Instagram on its own is a great cash generator and might be worth almost the full price uh, of the company. But with the cash flow from that all going into something that we think is at best like venture capital in terms of how, how wide an array of outcomes there is, uh, you know, it's in, in its current form, it's not, it's not a business that, 
um, that we're excited enough to say it's one of the 20 best stock opportunities that's out there. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Our next question is from Nick Rogers. Your line is open. Hi, Bill. Thank you for the call, and thank you for your wonderful perspective, as always. Uh, uh, thanks, Nick. Yeah, just a question on, as you hold stocks like Capital One and Ally that are pretty sensitive to the consumer and the outlook for credit, um, I know you're not an economic forecaster, but you must have an opinion on, on how deep the quote-unquote recession or slowdown might be. Um, so can you help us understand your, your thinking around not just those names, but how you view the uh, the coming economic environment and how and also how you view uh, EPS for Q4 and, and Q1 and not not to be too short-sighted but there's the bear case out there that's almost unanimously embraced by Wall Street that Q4 earnings are going to be horrible and maybe Q1 and the market's going to retest its lows so you you must have an opinion on talking to these businesses do they see this kind of cliff coming that some of the strategists are seeing or do they see a more um you know, a more tepid environment or something something similar um i think something with both uh, companies like ally and capital one is they have been at this business for a very long time and they haven't really changed who their customer is you know, they they don't compete for the super prime customers with the the largest banks like BAC or JPM, um, they're, they're lending to, to customers that are not quite as solid credit risks, and they're getting paid a lot more to lend to that customer. Um, they've got a very good long-term track record of uh, how, how they uh, decide who to, to lend to, and both companies would say that They've enjoyed the past couple of years uh, of below average defaults, and uh, they anticipate defaults moving back up toward historical averages, but that people don't default on car loans if they're employed. And I think what's different about the economic backdrop we're in right now, I mean, maybe we're on the cusp of a recession, maybe we're not, but very rarely are you in the position where there's tremendous excess demand for bottom quartile employees, unskilled labor? Uh, it's, it's the easiest time probably in my, in my career for unskilled labor to get, uh, to get employed and to get reasonably good uh, pay. Uh, I think the bottom quartile has been the only sector of the labor market whose salary gains have outpaced inflation over the past couple of years. Um, so, to, and, and these stocks are very cheap on, on like trailing earnings. Uh, Cap One, just a few days ago at least, was selling uh, below tangible book value, about six times, uh, times recent earnings. Uh, Ally, pretty similar to that, maybe a little bit sharper discount to its book value. Um, so, I, I think there's a big difference in how the market reacts if your stock's at 30 times earnings and you miss by a few percent on a quarter compared to if your stock's at five or six times earnings and you miss by a couple percent. It's one of the reasons we don't worry too much about what uh, 
any of our companies is likely to earn in any specific quarter. But I think to to really believe the bear case, uh, you have to believe that the Fed is is just going, going to completely crush the economy to the point that there's no more demand uh, for uh, for new positions for for the lower quartile or unskilled labor. And I just I I can't believe that uh, that politicians are going to let that happen. Uh, one of one of the rules of thumb I've always lived by in this business has been that economic forces tend to be more powerful than political forces. And I think the strong demand for labor uh, is secular right now. And uh, at, at some point, politicians will get smart enough to you know, allow undocumented to work for big companies or um, stop paying people as much as we're paying them today to stay home. You know, the COVID payments are continuing. It's one of the reasons that we see such low labor force participation. Uh, I, I think there are just a number of steps that the government could take, you know, maybe not passing trillion-dollar-plus stimulus bills uh, while we're trying to tame inflation, that, that those things could happen and prevent the Fed from having to go so far that it, it just truly crushes the economy. So our... Our opinion as long-term investors is that you know, rationality will eventually prevail. Uh, it might get kind of nerve-wracking on the path there, but eventually uh, the, the government is not going to put the Fed in the position of, of having to destroy the economy. Um, so so that's, that's kind of our point of view. Uh, I think the structural part of inflation starts with labor costs and Demand uh, for for unskilled labor is very high and and is likely to stay high, but we've we've got so many ways we could we could fill that supply gap uh, if we chose to that would be far less painful than uh, going through a, a recession of the magnitude uh, like we had in 2008. And and one other last point on this and something I've probably said before on uh, co- these calls is I think it's important to remember how unusual the recessions of 08 and 2020 were. Uh, I think of those as almost generational recessions. And most recessions in my investment career were the type where the first quarter when the GDP is down, people are a little bit surprised that it was down. Uh, there's discussion about will, will it be followed by another down quarter or not. Uh, when it is, then everybody's like, oh, boy, two down quarters in a row. I guess we're in a recession now. Now we have to start thinking about how we should be changing our investments. But the reality was by the time you had the two down quarters, we were, the, the path to recovery uh, was, was already being blazed. Mm-hmm. And after the recession was over, I mean, the recession was basically over by the, by the time there was consensus agreement that we were in it. And, you know, Six months later, uh, what was at the time viewed as a serious drop uh, is a small blip on a long-term chart of GDP growth. But people under 40 years old were not in the business uh, for the last, what I would call, normal recession. Uh, mm-hmm. And I guess 
I, I would have called the first half of this year a recession. Uh, the officials who get to decide that uh, kind of broke their standard rule of two down quarters being a recession. Um, but it's just semantics. We, we did have two down quarters of GDP. We had a, a recovery in the third quarter. Most people are saying fourth quarter will be a pretty decent recovery from that. Um, so I, I don't think it's by any means a certainty that uh, 2023 has to be a recession, and if it is a recession, that it has to be uh, anything that uh, would be anywhere close to the scale we've gone through in the past two recessions. Mm-hmm. That's an uh, excellent perspective. And uh, just so if I hear you correctly, and I don't know your cash position right now, but it doesn't sound like you have an abnormally large cash position because you're preparing for some serious downdraft that the strategists are are predicting. Yeah, our cash cash position is almost always around 5%. We're not market timers. Right. Uh, we we think the the long-term trend of the market is up and when you think as long-term as we do, it's it's very difficult to ever get negative enough that you want to create a large cash position. Uh, I've told people, you know, we have about 5% cash. I think about half of that we need to have defensively so that we could handle redemptions without becoming a forced seller. And the other half I think of is offensive, that you know, every couple of years an opportunity comes up where there is a forced seller, the market's in turmoil, and the only way you can take advantage of the forced seller is if you have the cash already. Mm-hmm. Now, when the trader calls and said they need, says they need a bid on this right now and they might be able to get it down 10%, you can't say, I want to trim these 10 other positions to create the cash to buy this. You, you can only participate if you have cash. So that's why we have the 5% cash. And uh, what I've committed to uh, ever since uh, Oakmark Select started you know, 25-plus years ago was if we ever got to a point where we said – our cash was going to be significantly above that level because we can't find opportunities that we think are long-term undervalued, we would send out some type of special communication to the shareholders. But short of ever receiving something like that from us, you can expect that we're going to be relatively fully invested all the time. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that and for your steady approach. It uh, seems like it's going to really be rewarded in this coming environment. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Our next question is from Kevin Anthony. Your line is open. Hi, Bill. You've talked about the funds, and uh, we appreciate all the information there. Um, we've been investors with with you guys for north of 20 years, and, um, you know, it just seems, and first of all, thanks for the results over that time period. Uh, but it seems like over the last three or four years, We've seen a number of the big names at the firm make a decision to retire or move along into something else. And um, I just wondered if you could take a minute and sort of characterize uh, the status of the firm as it relates to uh, personnel behind the, behind the performance of these funds and what the future like looks like. Sure. I think um, you know, one of the One of the things that happens when a firm is successful, as ours has been, is it creates an opportunity for for people to think about 
doing something else with their lives uh, at a younger age than what you uh, you would normally uh, been where you would normally see that at other companies. Um, we've we've had a retirement. You know, Bob Levy. Uh, he was in his late 60s when he retired. Uh, that's a pretty typical one. Um, Kevin Grant and Wynn Murray were both in their 50s, I believe, uh, which is a little bit early. Uh, you know, Kevin had other things he wanted to do with his life. Wynn, Wynn wanted to move into a, a less mature situation uh, where he could uh, he could potentially be be more of a key figure in uh, kind of changing the trajectory of the business, but. I think it's important to to understand how much stronger, how much broader, and how much deeper our our talent pool is today than it's ever been in my career. You know, when when we started uh, Oakmark Funds, I would say there were maybe half a dozen of us that were working on on research ideas for Oakmark, uh, and today that number. Would probably be more more like 15 people uh, on, on purely on the domestic side, and how much easier it is for us to recruit top talent today than it than it was you know, when I when I was in my 20s and 30s, uh, because of Oakmark's long-term track record, because of the brand name recognition as one of the leaders in value investing, uh, we we have got. A tremendous number of inbound resumes all the time of people who believe that value investing is how they want to spend their career, uh, and you know we are certainly a, if not the, preferred destination for that. Uh, so I'm extremely comfortable with with where we're at uh, on a talent basis. Um, personally, I. Uh, maybe I'm not a very exciting person away from the office, but there's there's nothing I would rather do than this. And uh, I'm 64, but I anticipate doing this for for at least the next five years, maybe longer than that, uh, be, because I love doing it. And uh, the the teams that we have today, uh, where on the Oakmark Fund, uh, I'm working with Bobby Beerig and Mike Nicholas. Uh, both in their 40s, uh, tremendous talents uh, that are well well beyond the bench strength that we had uh, again early, earlier in in Oakmark's history, and then add to that Alex Fitch on Oakmark Select that Bobby also works with me on. Uh, I mean that's that that's a a talent stack that uh, we've just never had the luxury of having. So. I'm I'm very comfortable with with where we're at on a talent basis. Uh, I'm more comfortable than ever that the opportunity set in the market uh, is fantastic for us. There just is it seems like every year there's less competition in terms of investors that are willing to think five to seven years in the future to decide how they want to invest their portfolios today. So I. I think the opportunity remains intact. I think we've got the right team to take advantage of that opportunity. Uh, and you know, for what it's worth, for all of us at Oakmark, it's where we want to our funds are where we want to invest our own capital. And for for all of us, 
the funds we manage are our primary and personal investments. So uh, I, I think it's as good as it's ever been. And if I could just follow up, um, in terms of the, the funds that all of the folks there are investing in, um, I wanted to ask specifically about the Oakmark Global Select Fund, and, and I understand that you're kind of stepping back from that fund. We uh, we made a decision at the inception of that fund that this was an opportunity to take advantage of the um, the abilities that Oakmark had on the domestic and uh, international side in its most concentrated format, and we're big on concentration. And so uh, I'm just curious about um, is it still appropriate to look at that and say this is a wonderful place to be put in capital uh, over the next decade? Yeah, I certainly think so. Um, obviously, the international markets have not been the best place to put capital uh, in the past five or ten years, whether you've done it on a diversified or a concentrated basis. But the way we think, that means the opportunity is even greater today. I think specifically in terms of how we're managing um, the global global concentrated fund, uh, it had largely been two separate sleeves where uh, David and his team would be putting in their favorite ideas from the non-U.S. side, and uh, Tony and myself uh, would be putting in the, our favorite ideas on the domestic side, and then we'd get together and you know, make sure that we didn't you know, each have too many financials or you know, that you know, the, the, there was a portfolio overlay and not just a, a favorite ideas portfolio. And I think what we've found over time is that there's an advantage in having someone who can be immersed in a global product as opposed to a domestic person working on, an inter, uh, on a fund that happens to also own international names. And what Tony and I decided is that we would be better off if he could more fully focus on the global side and I could more fully focus uh, back on just domestic investments. And we think that all of our funds will be better off with that structure. And we've got a team on the global fund now that will focus globally and we you know, we've got a team on Oakmark Select that will focus on concentrated U.S. investing. Uh, we th we think that's that's going to be uh, better for for our results. So so obviously better for our clients, and also is is the best way uh, to to continue career development uh, for our for our you know, broad and deep. A group of talented investors. So it's a subtle shift, um, but uh, I think it's going to be done in a way that uh, is going to be beneficial to the product. Great. Thank you for your comments, Bill. I would just like to say thanks again to everyone on the call. Uh, thanks for your patience with uh, with a year like 2022. Uh, we we, we like the setup that we're in going into 2023. We like the early results, uh, and uh, we, certainly we believe uh, we're set up to have a much better year for 2023. So thank you, everyone. I look forward to talking to you next quarter. Important information. Average annualized total returns for Oakmark Fund Class I shares as of December 31st, 2022, three-month.
10.29, year to date, minus 13.36, one year, minus 13.36, three years, 9.49, five years, 7.78, 10 year, 11.86, average annualized total returns for Oakmark Select Fund Class I shares as of December 31st, 2022, three month. 4.66, year to date, minus 22.74, 1 year, minus 22.74, 3 years, 4.68, 5 years, 1.93, 10 year, 8.35, average annualized total returns for S&P 500 indexes of December 31st, 2022, 3 month, 7.56, year to date, minus 18.11, 1 year, minus 18.11, 3 years, 7.66, 5 years, 9.42, 10 year, 12.56, performance data listed represents past performance and is no guarantee of, and not necessarily indicative of, future results, total return and value will vary, and you may have a gain or loss when shares are sold, current performance may be lower or higher than quoted, for most recent month-end performance, visit im.natixis.com, performance for other share classes will be greater or less based on differences in fees and sales charges, performance for periods less than one year is cumulative, not annualized, returns reflect changes in share price and reinvestment of dividends and capital gains, if any, neither Natixis Investment Managers nor Harris Associates, LP provide tax or legal advice, please consult with a tax or legal professional prior to making any investment decisions, the index information contained herein is derived from third parties and is provided on an as-is basis. The user of this information assumes the entire risk of use of this information. Each of the third-party entities involved in compiling, computing or creating index information disclaims all warranties, including, without limitation, any warranties of originality, accuracy, completeness, timeliness, non-infringement, mercantility and fitness for a particular purpose. With respect to such information, definitions of terms used in this material, S&P 500 index is a widely recognized measure of U.S. stock market performance. It is an unmanaged index of 500 common stocks chosen for market size, liquidity, and industry group representation. Among other factors, it also measures the performance of the large cap segment of the U.S. equities market. P.E. Price earnings refers to the ratio of a stock's price to its earnings per share for the trailing 12 months. Does not include options. This excludes negative earnings. E&P refers to an exploration and production company, which is a specific sector within the oil and gas industry. GAAP. Generally accepted accounting principles refers to a common set of accepted accounting principles, standards, and procedures that companies and their accountants must follow when they compile their financial statements. EPS refers to earnings per share, calculated as a company's profit divided by the number of outstanding shares of its common stock. EBIT refers to earnings before interest and taxes and is a measure of a firm's profit that includes all incomes and expenses, operating and non-operating except interest expenses and income tax expenses. EBITDA refers to earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization and is a metric used to evaluate a company's operating performance. It can be seen as a proxy for cash flow. FANG is the acronym for four high-performing technology stocks in the market Facebook, Amazon, Netflix and Google, now Alphabet, Inc. SAS stands for the Statistical Analysis System, a software system for data analysis and report writing. SAS is a group of computer programs that work together to store data values and retrieve them, modify data, compute simple and complex statistical analyses, and create reports. Negative real rate means that the inflation rate is greater than the nominal interest rate. REITs, Real Estate Investment Trust, is a company that owns, operates, or finances income generating real estate. Modeled after mutual funds, REITs pool the capital of numerous investors. This makes it possible for individual investors to earn dividends from real estate investments, without having to buy, manage, or finance any properties themselves. SPAC, Special Purpose Acquisition Company, is a company with no commercial operations that is formed strictly to raise capital through an initial public offering, IPO, for the purpose of acquiring an existing company. Russell 1000 Growth Index is an unmanaged index that measures the performance of the large cap growth segment of the U.S. equity universe. It includes those Russell 1000 companies with higher price-to-book ratios and higher forecasted growth values. Russell 1000 Value Index is an unmanaged index that measures the performance of the 
large cap value segment of the U.S. equity universe. It includes those Russell 1000 companies with lower price to book ratios and lower expected growth values. Discounted cash flow DCF is a valuation method used to estimate the value of an investment based on its expected future cash flows. An exploration and production ENP company is in a specific sector within the oil and gas industry. Exploration and production is the early stage of energy production, which includes searching and extracting oil and gas. R&D is an abbreviation for research and development. NFT non-fungible tokens are unique cryptographic tokens that exist on a blockchain and cannot be replicated. ESG or environmental, social, and governance criteria are a set of standards for a company's operations that socially conscious investors use to screen potential investments. Return on equity, ROE, is a measure of financial performance calculated by dividing net income by shareholders' equity. Top 10 holdings, percent, for the Oakmark Fund as of December 31, 2022. Alphabet CLA, 3.6% of portfolio. KKR, 3.2% of portfolio. Wells Fargo, 3.0% of portfolio. Oracle, 2.8% of portfolio. Citigroup, 2.5% of portfolio. Capital One Financial, 2.5% of portfolio. EOG Resources, 2.5% of portfolio. CBRE Group CLA, 2.5% of portfolio. Willis Towers Watson, 2.4% of portfolio. APA, 2.4% of portfolio. Top 10 Holdings, percent, for the Oakmark Select Fund as of December 31, 2022. Alphabet CLA, 9.1% of portfolio. CBRE Group CLA, 7.3% of portfolio. Oracle, 7.1% of portfolio. KKR, 6.3% of portfolio. Salesforce, 5.2% of portfolio. Lithia Motor CLA, 5.2% of portfolio. Capital One Financial, 2.1% of portfolio. Intercontinental Exchange, 4.5% of portfolio. HCA Healthcare, 4.5% of portfolio. Citigroup, 4.4% of portfolio. The portfolio is actively managed and characteristics, holdings or sectors are subject to change. References to specific securities or industries should not be considered a recommendation. For current characteristics, holdings or sectors please visit our website. All investing involves risk, including risk of loss. For Oakmark Fund Class I shares, the gross expense ratio is 0.93% and the net expense ratio is 0.91%. As of the most recent prospectus, the investment advisor has contractually agreed to waive fees and or reimburse expenses, with certain exceptions once the expense cap of the fund has been exceeded. This arrangement is set to expire on January 27, 2023. When an expense cap has not been exceeded, the gross and net expense ratios may be the same. For Oakmark Select Fund Class I shares, the gross expense ratio is 1.00% and the net expense ratio is 0.98%. As of the most recent prospectus, the investment advisor has contractually agreed to waive fees and or reimburse expenses, with certain exceptions once the expense cap of the fund has been exceeded. This arrangement is set to expire on January 27, 2023. When an expense cap has not been exceeded, the gross and net expense ratios may be the same. Fund risks. Oakmark Fund and Oakmark Fund. Equity securities are volatile and can decline significantly in response to broad market and economic conditions. Value investing carries the risk that a security can continue to be undervalued by the market for long periods of time. Concentrated investments in a particular region, sector, or industry may be more vulnerable to adverse changes in that industry or the market as a whole. Foreign securities may be subject to greater political, economic, environmental, credit, currency and information risks. Foreign securities may be subject to higher volatility than U.S. securities, due to varying degrees of regulation and limited liquidity. These risks are magnified in emerging markets. Oakmark Select Fund Non-diversified funds invest a greater portion of assets in fewer securities and therefore may be more vulnerable to adverse changes in the market. Before investing in any Oakmark Fund, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, management fees and other expenses. This and other important information is contained in a fund's prospectus and summary prospectus. Please read the prospectus and summary prospectus carefully before investing. For more information, please call 1-800-OAKMARK-625. 6275. This material is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. The views and opinions expressed are as of January 12, 
2023 and may change based on market and other conditions. Diversification does not guarantee a profit or protect against a loss. Natixis Distribution LLC, member FINRA SIPC, is a marketing agent for the Oakmark Funds, a limited-purpose broker, dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Add tracks, 1478442291, expiration date, April 30, 2023, POD 61, December, 2022.